So I guess the most logical first question is, why are we talking about the seven habits of highly effective people in Sunday school? Uh, we had had this idea to do a Bridge Builders Book Club is what we're calling it. And so when we have a couple weeks here or there, we, we thought it would be good to go over some classic books. The idea was they'd be Christian books, okay, so some of the classics maybe that you know, that you know of. Um, this book, though, is something that we've been going over in a little small group that I've got the last few weeks, and it's really been great to go through. I've read it. It's probably been 10 years ago. I think I listened to the audiobook then four or five years ago and revisiting it now, and I feel like every time I revisit it or I read it, I get something new out of it. And so uh, I definitely think it applies to our lives as Christians. Of course, it applies to our lives as husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and friends and employees and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, it's also written by a, a man, Stephen Covey, who is, he's Mormon, um, but obviously a lot of his Christian beliefs and the beliefs that we share, uh, he used that to, to forge this book. Um, I think also it focuses on timeless principles that I think are important, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. So things like fairness, integrity, honesty, and human dignity. Um, I think this verse also fits. So this is from Philippians. You probably know this verse. Finally, brothers and sisters, what is, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So I think it's okay to take one Sunday and talk about something like this. It's a little bit both secular and I think also religious in a way. Of course, I'll, I'll tie it into Christianity whenever I get the op- opportunity. And what I, would, what I would say is, is if you get a chance, read this book. Uh, Who has read this book before? Okay, quite a, quite a, you've not read this book. Oh, you have. Okay, you just don't want to raise your hand. Okay. Um, so, uh, highly recommend it. A long read, but a good read. I, and also really recommend the audio book, because the author himself reads it in that. Um, it's sold over 30 million copies. It's been translated into 40 languages. So, it's, uh, needless to say, a really popular book. So, I invited Charlie here today. Um, I was like, Charlie, I kind of want you to learn some of these things. I don't think I learned... Uh, much of what's in this book, I mean, some of it, my parents are also here, so I don't want that to sound bad, but some of this I just never really heard. I mean, maybe I picked up pieces here and there, um, but hadn't heard most of this until maybe in my 20s, and so I think Charlie at age 8 gets a good opportunity here. Uh, But we've recently put together, I think it's one of the biggest Lego sets, maybe not the biggest, but one of the biggest. Uh, It's got 6,000 plus pieces. It's the Hogwarts Castle, and Charlie did like probably 95% of it himself. We're really proud of him. We didn't know how it was going to go. Um, but one thing that happened in that process, and this is not to embarrass you, but very early on in the process, he got one little piece a little bit off in the foundation, okay? Uh, which, honest to goodness, I think I would have done the same thing. And so we were building up one of the turrets, and it wasn't fitting, couldn't get it to, to fit together, and so we had to kind of painstakingly go back and figure out what had been done wrong, and it was like literally a piece, one little you know, piece over, uh, and it was thrown off the rest of the castle, okay? Um, and so I think... On a lesson like today, that is true, is that if you get even one little thing wrong in some of your presuppositions, your foundational uh, character-based, you know, uh, who you are, you know, what you're about, I think it can throw off the rest of your life. And so when we talk about something like this, these are all very elementary things, but they're things you have to decide about yourself, about what what are you going to do, what decisions are you going to make, what is your integrity going to be like, and if you don't live those things out, it's hard to go way down the line and make it work, okay? So if you don't decide very early on what kind of decisions you're going to make when things get tough. Uh, when those things get tough, uh, you'll make bad decisions. So um, I guess then this question is, how do these apply to Christians? I alluded to it earlier. Um, I think that as a husband, as a wife, 
as a friend, as an employee or a manager of people. I think these uh, definitely apply uh, very much so. Um, I think one of our calls as Christians is to work at whatever we do with all our hearts, and so I think that applies to this as well. Um, So Colossians 3 kind of gets at this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And so I think that would be the one difference in a book like this for mostly a secular audience is that we're not doing this for our own legacy. We're not doing this for our own reputation. Uh, We're doing this uh, for the glory of God. All right, so let's talk about this idea of of habits, because obviously this book is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think we know what a habit is, but uh, I like this quote from Aristotle, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Um, And so I think this is like one of the big theses of the book is is that uh, you, you can't approach life as a series of things that you do in reaction. Uh, life needs to be something that it's inside out. And so you work on the inside, and we'll see that here in a second, and then from that should emanate all the right things. And so it's sort of like this idea of a stream, and if you have an issue really far downstream, you, it, you, it's stupid to go and, and work on the issue there. It's much smarter to go upstream to see the source of the issue. And so I think that's often true of us as Christians, is that we want to work on um, the results but not the core and so I think it'd be smarter to work on the Christian disciplines, the prayer, the scripture reading, who we actually are on the inside, uh, as opposed to working on the product, as it were. Um, so uh, this quote from Covey himself, I like this, habits are the intersection of knowledge, what, we d- what to do, rather, skill, how to do it, and desire, want to do. And so uh, habits are oftentimes a product of who we are. And so many of us carry habits that aren't great, and so I think today is, is an opportunity to sort of evaluate the things that you're doing regularly and whether those are things you want to be about or not. Okay, so let's list out the habits. And I will warn you, this is going to look kind of crazy. If you've read it before, this will be kind of nice. It'll remind you of some things. If you've not read this, this is going to seem overwhelming. But these are the seven habits. They're grouped into two primary segments, and then there's one that sort of encompasses them all. Um, and I spent a ridiculous amount of time on this slide, so enjoy it. Um, uh, There's also this process that we'll talk about from going from dependence to independence to interdependence, and I'll get at that in a second, but let's first look at the habits themselves. So habit one is the habit of be proactive, and we'll go through each of these. Two is begin with the end in mind. Three is put first things first, and those are all grouped together. These are all personal things that you focus on, okay? So we call them private victories, okay? So before you move on to public things or things where you interact with other people, you need to work on yourself. And so there's a lot of what Covey calls the personality ethic, which is based on basically how to trick people into doing what you want them to do. And uh, that's not what he's about. He's more about the character ethic, which is where you focus on yourself. And once you get yourself right and you understand who you are and how you react based on your character and your integrity, it follows that when you interact with people, those things go well and they represent your character. Um, so then you get to a level of independence, and then you build on that with habit four, which is to think win-win. Habit five, which is seek first to understand and be understood. Habit six, which is synergize. And then you reach, that's, those are public victories. Then you reach a level of interdependence. Okay, I will break now. Dependence, independence, and interdependence. And I want you to think about a baby. And so you think about the, uh, the life cycle of, of a baby. So what is a baby when they're first born? entirely dependent, okay? They can't do anything themselves. With time, by the time they become a teenager, they do get some independence, right? So they get to drive, they get to make some of their own decisions. Maybe you give them an allowance. 
And then eventually they reach a, a, a point of interdependence. And so think about starting a family and starting to make your own decisions and having to work together with others maybe in a job or in life. Um, and that is sort of the way of things. Now to make sure that this all happens again and again, there is this seventh habit which is called sharpen the saw. And it's the idea that you constantly renew yourself or reevaluate how you do these things so that you get better at them. I know this is a lot, but this is what we're doing today, okay? All right, so Covey says this about habits, and then we'll shift on into everything. Uh, he says, habits are powerful factors in our lives because they are consistent, often unconscious patterns. They constantly, daily, express our character and produce our effectiveness or our ineffectiveness. So if you have bad habits, they are powerful factors in your lives, uh, but certainly in the wrong direction. Okay, so it can make you a very ineffective person if you have bad habits, and we all have bad habits. Uh, and I won't list off mine, uh, but we'll get at some of that today. Uh, but if you continue to work on your habits, if you continue to renew this cycle that we just showed, uh, you'll end up being a pretty effective person, and that's the point of the book. All right, another one of my favorite points in this book, and I think it's important again with everything. I think as we start to get through these, you'll start to see how they're applicable to a lot of things. But it's what's called the PPC balance. Okay, and he uses the fable, it's an Aesop's fable of the golden goose or there's the golden hen. You've probably heard this story. And it's the idea that there's a farmer that all of a sudden has, you know, a group of geese and one of those geese uh, starts laying golden eggs. And he's able to sell these golden eggs for a lot of money, which would be great, right? Um, so each morning he goes in and sure enough, there's another golden egg and another golden egg. Well, what happens with time after a few weeks of getting these golden eggs is he gets greedy. So what does he do? Well, he goes and he kills the goose and opens it up to try and get all the golden eggs that are inside this goose. But there are no golden eggs inside the goose, and the goose is dead. Um, and so he has effectively eliminated the source of these golden eggs. Okay, uh, A lot of applications that could be made. The application that Covey makes is that there is this difference in the short and the long term. Okay, and so what that farmer was doing is he was valuing the short term versus the long term. What should he have done? Well, he should have taken care of that goose really well, given it its own coop, given it great food, taken care of it, and he would have continued to get those golden eggs. And I think this is true of us in life, is that I think that we're very um, short term motivated. I think more and more in our culture today, we're motivated by the now and the I need that right now. And a lot of, in a lot of ways, from an integrity standpoint or character standpoint, that is not the way to live. It's not the way to be effective, certainly from a long-term standpoint. So a lot of these habits require taking an impulse and pushing it to the side in lieu of your character uh, or what your long-term goals are. And so the P is production, which would be the golden egg. That's the production. But the PC, which is the uh, production, production capability, would be the goose in this case. Okay, so you have to get a balance between that. I think that's true of, of I, I, I'm an, you know, I employ several people, and there are times where I could just value the production but not the employee or the, or the PC, the production capability, and that could be bad. Because there's a point where if you push too hard on the production, people kind of give up or they wear out. Okay? I think this is true of a marriage. I think this is true of a church. This is true of just about anything. And so if you're too focused on the production or what someone can give you in the short term, and you don't put any value or any time into the PC, things will start to fall apart. Do you agree with that? Do you follow that? Okay. All right, so let's jump into habit one. Um, I'm gonna need someone to help with time. I'm gonna ask Mitchell. Sure. You tell, what time are we at right now? 10.42. That's not so bad. Will you, will you uh, wave at me when it's 10.45? I will. Thank you, Mitchell. All right, so 
Here is, uh, again, this is the path to independence. These are private victories. These three habits deal with yourself, and these are things that you work on yourself, okay? And again, in order to be a good husband, a good boss, you know, when you're interacting with other people, you need to first be a good person. You need to first be an effective person before you can be an effective leader or spouse or what have you. All right, so habit one is to be proactive. This is the idea that you take action and you also take responsibility. Um, we need to stop being reactive and stop playing the victim. Um, so here are two options and decide for yourself, you don't have to raise your hand, but decide for yourself which sounds more like you. Option A, I create my life. And then option B, life happens to me. What in your heart sounds more like you? Well, option A, that represents a proactive person, whereas option B would represent a reactive person. And I would say of reactive people, a lot of us are that way at different times. It's almost like being like an animal, where animals, the difference between animals and humans, one of them is, is that animals are forced to um, respond in the ways that they're hardwired. So they respond on instinct, almost purely, okay? What is the difference with humans? Well, humans can choose how they react. There is that separation between your stimulus, or what happens, and your reaction. And in that space is where you really decide what kind of person you're going to be, okay? So that difference, that little space between the stimulus and the reaction that you have is a very, very important space that a lot of us don't think of. And if we only react to things, and we only react how we're hardwired to react, or maybe through the habits that we've inherited from the people that we've grown up around, then how does that make us any different than an animal, okay? And so we would expect a dog to react a certain way, or a cow, okay? But as a human, we are on a different level where we can proactively decide how we choose to react. And in that way, it gives us tremendous strength uh, and, and tremendous effectiveness, okay? And so I would say of reactive people, and we all know these people are really negative people, or people who always act like things are happening to them, that they're powerless to do anything about it, um, they're oftentimes very negative, and they're very cynical, and they're very hard to be around. Um, they would blame, justify, and complain, and they do this to sort of, sort of take care of their responsibility, whereas someone who's very proactive would take that responsibility, and they would own it, and they'd say, well... This happened because of something I did, but you know what? I'm going to do my best to fix that or to change that, okay? Um, and it comes out of this difference between you either think that life is controlled by internal forces or by external forces. And certainly there are some things in life that are controlled by external forces. We cannot control everything. But I think one key of someone who's a, a highly effective person is they seek to have control over everything that they can within reason. I know that sounds bad. We'll, we'll get to kind of what I mean in a little bit. Um, you may have heard Eric Gentry talk about this idea of differentiation. Has anyone remembered him talking about that? I don't know if he's talked about it a lot, but it's really stuck with me. And his example of a differentiated person is one who can receive an angry email from someone at 9.30, but then be peacefully asleep at 10. Okay, so I'm the kind of person, if I got an email at 9.30, I'd be awake at 1.30 trying to decide how to fix it, trying to get on the phone, trying to make it right. Um, I am not a super differentiated person. I'm getting better, um, but I struggle with that. Eric, I know this of Eric, he is a pretty differentiated person. If he got that, it would bother him, but he'd probably be able to be asleep by 10 o'clock. Um, and again, what you're doing there is you're prioritizing your values over your impulses. Um, and I think in that way, we have to be different than the vast majority, because I think the vast majority of people react first uh, without thinking about it. Um, and I would say this is that no one can make you angry if you decide that you don't want to get angry. And so I would say, just as a challenge to kind of think through these things, uh, here are some examples. Um, I choose to not be angry in my work environment. I choose to spend only planned expenses in my personal budget. Uh, 
I will be more present and involved in my family's happiness. So I think unless you decide those things proactively, it's very easy to let that not happen. It's sort of like going on a vacation. If you don't plan it, it is very possible in two years, hey, we've never gone on a vacation. We should have done that, you know? It's like, well, okay, should have. Um, and then I love this. This is, uh, I know there's a lot going on here. And these first two habits are certainly busier than the other ones. But it's this idea of circle of concern versus circle of influence. And I think this gets to the heart of what a lot of the issues are uh, with this, is I think we're too concerned with too many things. I think social media has brought that on. I know we blame social media for a lot, but certainly social media has increased our circle of awareness and thus our circle of concern. Um, and it, it's basic core, if we're concerned about things that we have no influence or control over, what is the point, okay? There's some degree of that that's inevitable. Um, but your circle of concern, it encompasses a wide range of concerns, okay? Things that you're aware of, such as your health, your children, your problems at work, the decisions our government makes, for goodness sakes, uh, the weather or threat of nuclear war. Okay, those are all possible concerns. But your circle of influence are the things that you can actually do something about, something that you have actual control over. And so if you're more proactive, you will work on expanding your circle of influence. Okay, um, And in that way, it starts to encompass more of your circle of concern. You'll find that you can do more things about the things you're aware of and that you're concerned about. However, if you increase the circle of concern, your circle of influence, it shrinks, okay? And so that would be having a reactive focus. I think negative energy gets you to a point where you're aware of so much and you're affected by so much because the external world is almost closing in on you, but then you find that what you can actually do something about becomes very, very small, okay? And I think a lot of us get trapped in that and we start to feel helpless and then we complain more and we complain more and then you find out that really no one wants to be around you as <laughs> that kind of person. I mean, to be honest. Um, and I know people that are concerned about all sorts of things they have no control over and that will be stressed out and they'll post about it on social media and it's like, to what end? What's the point? Um, what could we do about the weather, really? We can protect ourselves if it gets really bad. There'll be a siren for that. What about politics? What can we really do about what Donald Trump does or what Hillary Clinton does or any of these people? Basically nothing. We can go and vote. That's, that's basically what we can do. And yet we'll spend four years worrying about it until the next time. Um, and so I would, just, I would, I would encourage you to, to focus on the things that you can influence and that you can control. Okay, habit two. This is going to be a lot. You're going to be exhausted after today. Hello, Spencer. Um, begin with the end in mind. All right, so I want you to imagine a funeral two or three years from now. And, here's, uh, and so you imagine you know, seeing all the people here, the brothers and sisters and friends and I don't know if you'll have a priest at your funeral. Okay, maybe you'll just have a minister. Okay, there won't be the little thing. Um, and you're listening to people give eulogies. Well, here's the kicker. This funeral is your funeral. Okay, sorry, I don't know what happened, but it's your funeral. And the question that he asks is, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want the people who are eulogizing you to be saying about you? And so it's sort of this reverse process where you imagine, well, let's write down the things that I would want people to say about me that I would want to sort of... You know, summarize the life that I've lived, and then I'll work backwards towards that. So I'll work at accomplishing those things and living out a life that would cause someone to say those things. Certainly we don't want a funeral where no one attends and people get up and they're like, well, he's dead. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but that's it. You, know. you want people to say things about you that eh, represent that you lived a life worth living. Okay? Um, and so this is how we should plan our lives, with the end in mind. Okay? And that's how anything really good is done. We'll talk about blueprint later, but if you're going to build a house, you've got a blueprint at first. You have to have a plan in place. And the better the blueprint, the better the build. Um, 
So I think our culture, again, I'm going to pick on our culture a few times, but it's hyper-focused on living in the moment or living in the now. And I think that brings up issues. I think there is great value in looking to the past for guidance and, and planning for the future. Okay? I think you can be someone that's too focused from a control and an influence standpoint on the past or the future. You can't live your life in the past or live your life in the future, but I think it is valuable. And so we need to visualize where we want to go. Before you start something important, you always sit down and you plan it out. And I found that in my business, we're very good at planning out. We have multiple meetings, you know, monthly meetings, yearly meetings, semi-annual meetings, where we plan things, we make goals, we're really strategic. But in our personal lives, eh, not so much, okay? Which is weird, because from a priority standpoint, which we'll talk about in the next habit, what's more important, ultimately? Well, probably our family, right, than our, than our business. And so why is that? And so I guess I would encourage you, if you've never made plans or sat down and decided a strategy for your family, well then do it, because those are first things, you should put them first. Um, I love this uh, quote that he has, is don't uh, get buried in the thick of thin things, which will show up in the next habit, but I think that's super common, uh, to let the thin things of life just cover us up. We really never get to anything of much import. Uh, So one of the best ways to incorporate this is to come up with a personal mission statement. We won't go into a ton of that, but a personal mission statement is, is, quite frankly, it's just a blueprint for your life. It is something you don't come up with in 10 minutes. Like if I were to say, all right, take five minutes, come up with a personal mission statement. That's not really how that works. It should take you know, several days at least to come up exactly with what you want your life to be about. Uh, but like sports teams do this, you know, they have like little mottos that, that, that kind of drive them. Uh, Friday Night Lights, uh, what, what's the little phrase? I bet you know that show. Yeah? Was it Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, Can't Lose? Is that right? Okay. It's been a while. That was an ad lib. Um, but that's like, like the motto of the team for multiple seasons on that show. It's a great show. Um, and it drives them. It tells them what they're about. And it, it kind of motivates them and centers them. How do you discover your personal mission statement? Well, that's a tough one. Um, I would say prayer, self-reflection, intentional planning, visualizing the end, working together in community to come upon these things. Um, Covey says that we should be true to ourselves. But I would push back and say that's a little dangerous. I think it's, again, a really culturally popular thing. Be true to yourself. Go where you feel like you should go. I think doing that can get you in a lot of problems. And so I would say a better way is to be true to God or maybe be true to the image of God that's written on all of us. Okay? And that is, if I, if I knew exactly how to accomplish that every day, I would do it. But that's a little bit harder than just saying it. Um, I think one way, it, oh, and here's like an example of a personal mission statement. And here's this idea that when we create something, there's always first a mental creation, so like a blueprint idea. And if you've planned this out in your mind, so just in life in general, if you've decided what you're going to be and who you're going to be and how you're going to react in certain situations, then the physical or the second creation is much easier. Okay, so let's talk about this very quickly. I love this part of the book that talks about what is your center or what is your, your core motivation, I guess you could say. Um, and he, he tells us that most people start with a center that is not a true principle-based one. Um, and these are examples of people's typical centers. Okay, and up here you probably have your one thing that is stronger than all the rest. Okay, for a lot of people it's their money center. And so people with a money center, what do they put first? Money. Um, and they treat money as a source of their security and they often make family and friends a secondary priority to acquiring more money. You see this a lot in business, okay? Um, does that end well for people? No. Basically, like, never. Not basically. Never. 
Uh, even spouse centered, something that kind of sounds good, like I make my wife the center of my life. Well, that has issues too. So spouse centered people make their spouse a priority. Their whole existence though can become dependent on the feelings of their significant other. And Bill, that's dangerous, right? Yes, sir. It's very dangerous. Could be worse, but it's not ideal. What about family center? What about someone that whenever you ask him to do anything, well, that's, that's Thursday night, we spend time with the family. What about Friday night? Well, we have game night. What about Saturday night? Well, we're, we're doing baseball that night. You know, so uh, you can't also be just entirely focused on your family, as good as that sounds. Uh, and then other centers, work, possessions, pleasure, power, friends, enemies. What about if your center of life is your enemy and it drives you with everything you do? And that's true. There's people like that, that they're just so focused on maybe their enemy is, is faceless, but maybe it's just, again, the external world that's always out to get them. Well, that's no good. Uh, and then even church can be like that. And not church in the sense that it leads you to God, but church in the sense that it's churchianity or that it's the processes of church or showing up and doing class and all that kind of stuff. That can be a bad thing too. Uh, and then, of course, self, not a great core. And so what he posits is that a better core is, again, this integrity or these principles or these habits. And that's a better core from which then you make decisions. And so he argues to make a new center um, and the center, basically, is a gospel-centered life. And I think this is a great concept for a church. What a novel concept. To be gospel-centered. It'd be a lot easier to make decisions. And you see a lot of churches, they're not gospel-centered. What are they? Well, some of them are service-centered. You know, they're, they're, they're working to uh, accomplish social, social justice on this earth. Or maybe they're comfort-centered. They don't want to say anything that's going to make anyone uncomfortable. Or maybe they're, like, marriage ministry-centered, which is not bad. Okay. And you're not this, but I'm just saying there's churches where that's, that's like their big thing, or the recovery-centered, or, or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of good things, but if you're not gospel-centered, that should come first, and then the other things should emanate from that. Okay, like I said, lots of stuff. Okay, habit three. But first things first, I love this section. What time am I at? 10.36. Oh, wow. Okay. All right, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. This is Dwight D. Eisenhower, one of our, they usually break him in like the top ten, pretty good president from what I can tell, 34th president. He said this, what is important is seldom urgent. What is urgent, seldom important. This is one of the biggest ideas from this book that you may have heard before. Um, but he came up with what they call the Eisenhower matrix. And I think this is very, very important. Probably one of the best takeaways from today is this. Um, and it's this idea that you create this two by two matrix with four categories. So you have things that are urgent, things that are not urgent, things that are important, things that are not important. So what does box one represent? Well. Things that you should do, okay? So preparing for this lesson today was something that was urgent, was pressing on me. It was also important that I put this together for class, okay? A lot of examples about that. And really no one struggles with category one because if important things come to you and they're urgent, you do them. So whatever your job is, if you're a nurse or you are a contractor or a pharmacist, when work is brought to you, what do you do? Well, you do it unless you're, you know, a loser, you know, like you, you do your work. That's, that's easy enough. Charlie's a second grader. When you get homework brought to you, you do it. You know, it's, it's simple. Okay. What is the category we most often ignore? Things that are important, but they're not urgent. And what you'll find is that urgency is what motivates behavior more than importance, which is the opposite of how it should be. And so these are things that you have to decide, you have to plan for. So long-term goals, spending time with family, reading scripture, praying, um, exercising, getting in shape. Um, it's easy to put those things off because there's no urgency 
uh, associated with it. When it. In times where I have worked out, it was very common to find anything possible to do before I would start working. It's actually the, the best way to be efficient is to say, well, I got to work out because you'll get everything else done before you do it. Um, <laughs> then there are these categories. And note that they're in sort of an orange. These are, these are bad, okay? So use caution. Things that are urgent but not important. These are things that can be delegated. Now, granted, I, I am an employer of multiple people, so it's easy for me to delegate. For some people, it's not, which is why you have kids, because you can delegate <laughs> things to kids very easily. Um, but even things like booking travel, if you're in a position where you can, like if you're spending hours on that and it stresses you out, eh, maybe ask someone else to do that for you. Or mowing your lawn. If you hate mowing your lawn, it's the worst thing in your life, maybe find a kid that would be happy to mow it and even do a better job. Um, Social media management, that's, this is more from orthodontic standpoint, but there's a lot of examples of things that are not important, not necessarily that they get done, but that we do them, okay? And so they could be delegated. Um, but these are the things in this last quadrant that we actually, it turns out, spend a whole lot of time prioritizing, but there's no importance to them and they're not even urgent. So like finishing season three of a show that you really didn't like season two of anyway, but you feel this need to watch it. Watching season 17 of The Bachelorette. Uh, every Monday or Tuesday night or whatever night it comes on. Okay, so th those are things you should delete, okay? And I think the problem with our culture today, again, with a very, like, now-centered focus, is we spend more and more time in this quadrant and not enough time in this quadrant. So, again, if you're going to take one thing away from today, all these habits are basically uh, centered around this idea of focusing on these things that are not urgent but that are important, because on your deathbed, okay, you're not going to wish that you'd spent more time in this quadrant. Like, I only I wish I'd watched season four of that show again that I didn't really like. That is not what you're going to save your life. What you're going to say is, well, I wish I'd I carved out more time for these things. I wish I'd spent more time in my relationships or on that book that I always said that I would write. You know, those are what people are going to say. And so then why don't, again, begin with the end in mind. Why don't we know that? We know that's true, whatever that is in our lives. And then make sure that we carve out time for it. Okay, uh, here's some goal setting that I do. This is from David. These are seven categories. I do this, I've done this for the last two or three years now maybe, but seven different categories and I make little goals and I don't hit them all, but it stays up on my bathroom mirror and this helps me stay centered on the things that at the beginning of the year that I knew were important. So for that year, I will say that without this, I would not accomplish as much of these things as I'd like to, uh, but even though I don't get them all, um, it does help a lot and I'm happy to share this with you if you want this. Okay. So that was this section. So we've moved now from dependence to independence. That's the idea. We're no longer dependent, you could say, on you know, external st stimuli. We're, we're now independent of those things. Now, once we're independent, we can begin to focus on things that deal with other people. So once we've got ourselves figured out, now we can go out to the world and, and have positive impact on the world. So think win-win, seek first to understand, then to be understood, synergize. These are public victories, and that leads to interdependence meaning that we can work with other people in a synergistic uh, or quality way. Um, he talks about this idea of an emotional bank account. I think this is very valuable. Um, and I think you think about your relationships with other people as a bank account where you can, make, you, know, you can make deposits in that bank account or you can make withdrawals. And I think a lot of us in our marriages, all we ever do is we withdraw and uh, we're, we're now getting fees because we're, we're, our bank account is beyond empty. Um, and so... 
uh, he gives some ad advice on how to make up for that when we, when we do take withdrawals. Uh, understanding the individual, attending to little things, keeping commitments, clarifying expectations, showing personal integrity, and I love this one, apologizing sincerely when you make a withdrawal. And so I think most people are willing to accept our apology if we only are willing to make it. Um, so think win-win. We'll start to speed up with these. Um, I think most of us have grown up with this competitive mindset where I win, you lose, okay? I see this in my kids. No offense, Charlie. Um, but the way that you engage with other people in a negotiation is I'm going to win and, well, if I'm going to win, you have to lose. Now, of course, that's not the case always. And then some of us maybe they'll have the opposite, which is where we are patterned to kind of have a beaten down mindset where we say, well, I lose and you win. So we know people that are like that. And if you're a win-lose kind of person, who do you want to be around? You're going to be around a lose-win person because they're happy to let you win, okay? It's not healthy. Or maybe we have a mix of these things, and each mindset, I would say, has its place. I think it's okay sometimes to go into a negotiation and be willing to lose, okay, so that someone else can win. Um, but the real goal is to win-win, is to find a way to negotiate in such a way that both parties win, which what does that require of both parties? That they're willing to compromise, okay? And I think in marriage, that's one of the key words is compromise. Um, and to get to that point, you have to have conversations, which will be the next point. And then in doing this, in win-win, finding that, you uh, synergize and you get more out of the relationship than you otherwise would. Um, another thing I think is really important is this idea that you don't have to win or lose. You can always come upon this third alternative, which is no deal. And so if you have a relationship whereby it's with a win-lose person that expects you to lose every time, and you keep coming up against this, it's possible to extract yourself from that relationship and say, it's no deal. You know, I, I, I'm not going to continue to do this any longer. Um, I think in a church, absolutist win-lose mindsets can be very damaging. Someone that always has to get their ways. We know of marriages that's not good. Um, if I'm guilty of something, it's probably that I do push to win stuff more than I should. It's I'm real competitive, and I, I'm sorry about that. Um, there's, there's a quote. I'm trying to see where it is. Is that... Um, Oh, what is it? It's so good. It's this idea that if, if uh, oh, here it is. You don't want to win every argument with your spouse because pretty soon you discover that you're married to a loser, okay? Um, and it's this idea, if, if you force that of a relationship, what have, what have you accomplished? Well, you've made your spouse into the always, always the loser, and it's, it's not any good. Um, here is uh, something from Ecclesiastes, which a lot of this stuff feels, you know, very much like what you read in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. I mean, these are things that they're in the Bible for a reason. These are just practical matters, things, uh, you know, pearls of wisdom, if you will. Um, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Uh, and so I think a lot of this win-win, or sorry, this win-lose mindset is predicated on this idea that I'm better and, and my pride requires of me that I win this situation. And I know plenty of people like that. In a business setting, it's very difficult to interact with people like that. As a realtor, you understand this, is there's people that they only ever want to win, and it's exhausting. And so the best deals are always win-win deals. Um, now, this is a little aside, but I think evangelism can be difficult. 45, okay, we got about 10 minutes. It can be difficult um, if someone has a win-lose mindset. And when I think of a win-lose mindset from an evangelism standpoint, I think of Westboro Baptist or a street preacher that's only, you know, spouting out all the negatives. And the, and the win is this, is I guess they get some sort of a dopamine rush from being out there and doing what they think is right. But the lose is, well, you're, you're going to hell, okay? 
Um, and how often do they actually come up with a win-win solution by spouting hateful things? Like, is this sign really going to inspire a lot of win-win negotiations? Uh, probably not. I think the other paradigm is, is if you're so focused in, in a lose-win mindset from an evangelism standpoint, uh, how are you ever going to convince anyone of truth? And so I think we're to a point now where we don't want to tell anyone that what they believe is false or that it's sinful. And so we have this lose-win this lose -win mindset. So I'll let you win. I'll take this one. I'll lose on this one. And so from an evangelism standpoint, we have to find a way to win-win, and that can be difficult. Um, and it's probably beyond the scope of today. So habit five, we're getting there. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Uh, Candy should teach this part. This is on empathic listening, something you've probably studied a lot more than I have. Um, but in a conversation, I want you to answer this. What are most people doing when the other person is talking? That's right, Anna. Thinking about what they're going to say next, okay? What should they be doing? Listening. <laughs> they should be listening. Um, and so to influence and help others, you must first actively listen to them and understand their situation and, con and concerns. Then you could give a response, and then you could give advice. But uh, this is sort of like a doctor, that you walk into a doctor, he's sort of half listening, and then before you even finish explaining everything, he's like, okay, well, just take this, and he hands you the prescription. Or it's also sort of like, a, uh, like an optometrist that gives you a prescription, and it's their prescription. They don't understand why you can't see. It's like, well, I see perfectly well in these glasses. Why can't you? Um, and so we're very quick to give knee-jerk responses, or what he calls autobiographical uh, responses. So those autobiographical responses are like, well, in my experience, or hey, the same thing happened to me. Let me tell you about it. And what happens when people start doing that? Ugh, this story again, you know? And so what we need to do is we need to empathically listening, uh, listen, rather, which means that we emotionally, we listen, we, we, we try to understand, put ourselves in their own shoes, and then after all that's done, once we understand, then we can seek to be understood. What we normally do is we want to immediately be understood, or we just want to cover them up with our life experiences and not listen to what they actually have to say. Uh, again, there's a biblical uh, kind of example for this in James. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Hey, wouldn't we all be much better off if this were the case? Uh, so there's different types of listening, uh, and I think just kind of envision, well, what kind of a listener am, am I? So there is, after a long day of work, you could ignore the person that's talking to you. I'm guilty of this sometimes. That's the worst type of listening. You're just not even listening at all. You could pretend to listen. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. What did I say? Oh, you're just, you were talking about, you know, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and then there's selective. So you listen to some bits, the bits that you agree with that you want to talk about. Then there's attentive listening. Um, but the best level of listening is empathic listening. So you're not just listening for the facts, but you're listening for that next level of where you understand them, uh, you, you begin to appreciate their perspectives, and then once you do that, it's like you share emotion with them so that you can come upon a conclusion that's helpful to them. Okay, so it's sort of a next level uh, way of listening. Another way of saying this is to diagnose before you prescribe, um, treatment plan before you treat, or measure twice and cut once. There's different examples of this. Um, I like this one. This is, uh, this is me a lot of times. Okay, so we could all use a little bit more of that. And then I like this quote from, from uh, Covey. So when you can present your own ideas clearly, specifically, visually, and most important, contextually, in the context of a deep understanding of other people's paradigms and concerns, you significantly increase the credibility of your ideas. People are going to be a lot more likely to listen to you if you've actually listened to them first. Okay, so synergize. I realize I have a watch on my, on my wrist. That's funny. 
Yep. So I can, I'll check my own time <laughs> from here on. <laughs> Unbelievable. Things you forget when you've been up till way too early in the morning. Okay, so we know synergy is kind of one of these like really cliched terms. It's been used in like almost all self-help and business books for the last who knows how many years. But I, I think there is value to this, this conversation. Um, and this habit deals with teamwork and opening yourself emotionally to work with other people. The, the basic kind of idea is, is this idea that if you put one and one together, of course, mathematically, what is one plus one? It's two. Um, but from a teamwork standpoint and from a synergy standpoint, well, it could be more than two. It could be three or 16 or 50,000, okay, if you wanted to get to that point. What could one plus one also be? Like negative eight. <laughs> okay, if you're really bad at working together, it can be the other direction. Um, and so uh, he says this, optimistic, emotionally charged individuals who are living out the previous habits can work together in amazing ways to see new paths none of them would have found alone. And I think we all have this experience of working with people that share a mindset, that listen to one another, that are actively working uh, to be good to the other person and, and, and go for win-win negotiations and empathetically listen to them. And at the end of that, when you work together with those people, what happens? You accomplish way more than you ever could on your own. Now, we've also been in those situations, like in, in, I think, a group projects from college, where I don't know, does everyone that ever gets partnered with me is just totally worthless in college, but like, you have the people that like, they don't even show up, you have the people that show up, but they're on their, you know, on their computer, we didn't really have phones as much at the time, um, but there's no synergy at all, and you just end up doing the project yourself. But what we're seeking is synergy. In a church setting, in a class setting, we desperately need that. We need to be willing to work together and to put aside, sometimes, our own needs and wants for those of other people. Um, and I think at the core of this is that we value and respect differences. I think most of us are patterned to see differences as a challenge, uh, rather as something that there's quality in. Um, and so this allows us to build on, um, you know, you find someone's other weaknesses, but you can strengthen that, but you also accept that you have weaknesses that can be strengthened by working with other people too. Um, there's three levels of communication. I think most of us have probably been patterned to communicate or respond defensively. Um, and these oftentimes end up the opposite of synergy. Um, you can also be respectful, but then ideally you're synergistic, which is you go for a win-win and you multiply working together. Um, I'm going to scoot through some of this. And then he talks about this third alternative, which I think is great because I think if you take on sort of a classical way of approaching negotiations, there's two alternatives, and that's either I win or he wins, or I win or she gets her way. And that's not really the way to think of it. There's a third alternative where you both win, okay? He says that win-win is a belief that the third alternative, uh, it's not your way or my way, it's the better way, a higher way. Okay, so that gets us through this. We really sped through that. Uh, I would say this, this is a challenge. Make a list of the people who irritate you at work or in life. Um, and I, I'm going to ask this question. Do they represent different views that could lead to synergy if you had greater intrinsic security? meaning you're principled and comfortable in your own skin, position, and role, and value the difference these people present. Um, that could be applied to a lot of things. Let's just think about it politically. And so if you see someone who has a different political opinion as someone who just irritates you, where are you ever going to get with that person? Why don't you uh, instead say, well, you know what? I have intrinsic security. I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I know what I stand for. I know why I stand for these things. Why don't I listen to them and try and understand why they think that way? I think it would be a lot more valuable if you did. Okay. So once we've done all this, private habits, public habits, then there's this idea that you have to keep this going. So this idea of sharpening the saw. In just a few more minutes, I think we're actually going to finish in some sort of way, which is crazy. Uh, OK, so I want you to envision you come upon 
This has three lumberjacks. Just envision one, okay? If you want to envision three, it's fine. Um, and you make your way through a forest, and you come to a clearing, and you see a lumberjack who's trying to chop down a tree with a blunt saw. He's trying to, trying to saw it down. He's working feverishly. He's covered in sweat. He's clearly frustrated. And what can you tell? Well, you can tell that the saw is worn out, and it's not effective. So he's working really hard, but it's not getting him anywhere. So what does he need to do? He needs to sharpen his saw. Okay, and so this gets us back to that PPC balance, the golden goose paradigm, uh, where what is he working so much on? The production or the P, but not on the production capability. And so what should he do? Well, he should sharpen his saw, okay? Um, and uh, if you have a lumberjack that never sharpens their saw, well, they're not gonna be effective. And so as humans, we also have to work on sharpening our saw, as it were, to be able to do these habits. And so uh, just kind of quickly what that will be, uh, I extract from Luke 10, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Okay, so those four things, and in a lot of different uh, belief systems, these four things show up time and time again. These are sort of the four aspects of a human being that we need to focus effort on. And so uh, you'll see this in, there's a recent book called Four Gifts, Seeking Self-Care for Heart, Soul, Mind, and Strength. Basically the same idea. There's this little uh, compass, life compass that I found that apparently is used in the Episcopal Church a lot. Uh, but it has this idea of this heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the different things that fall under those categories. And real quickly, I will say that probably in here, you're good at two to three of these things, but one of them you do not focus on. And if you think about a wheel that has equal spokes, if one of those spokes is longer than the others or it's shorter than the others, that wheel is going to be wonky, right? So if these things get out of balance, your life is not going to be what it could be. And so for you, it might be that you don't spend enough time on strength. You don't physically exercise, you don't eat well, you drink too much, you have some bad habits in, ter in those terms, but you're great on all the other three. You read all the time, uh, you, you pray all the time, you're great in your social interactions with your heart, um, but that's not going to leave you as a very balanced or effective person. And so let me just do this real quickly. Let me just summarize each. Heart, soul, strength, and mind. Heart is you exercise care for important relationships. This could be date night, meals with friends, intentionality and giving time to people. Soul, you exercise uh, with prayer, inner reflections, reading scripture. Uh, as a Christian, this should be really our core, our center. Um, strength, again, exercise for a sense of well-being. We eat right, we relax, we take time to just kind of be sometimes. Um, and then mind, we exercise uh, the sharpening of our intellectual abilities. We journal, we read, we discuss important matters with other friends. Um, this is one that I think a lot of us don't do. We get out of school and we're like, well, I never have to take a test. I don't have to learn anymore. I see this professionally, uh, but it's very important to, to read and to, to exercise uh, your brain. I love this quote from Mark Twain. The man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. Um, and so I think we have to, to find a balance in these four categories. Okay, so I was going to play a music video. There might be time to do it. Um, and obviously there's a little bit more that I would like to get to, but that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good summary on it. Um, I think that what I'd say in conclusion is, is that most self-help literature, it points to leaving a legacy as the greatest goal of life. You'll see that as like, uh, you know, like hierarchy of needs or something. It's like it's at the top. It's like, you know, uh, basically accomplishing something that people will remember. So like if in 50 years people remember my name, like that somehow is valuable. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's uh, from a Christian standpoint accurate at all. Um, and I also don't think that leaving a legacy is necessarily a, a sign of a life well lived. Uh, I think that um, God wants us to glorify his name and not our name. 
Okay. So there's a, there's a popular song right now, and I was going to play the video, but I'll just read the lyrics, and then we will conclude. Um, it's called Only Jesus by Casting Crowns, and I think it says this better than I possibly can. So I'm going to read the first and second verse in the chorus. Um, it says, Make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself, dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers, but all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the lie that it was up to me to make a name the world remembers, but Jesus is the only name to remember. And I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. And I've only got one life to live. I'll let every second point to him, only Jesus. Verse 2, all the kingdoms built, all the trophies won, will crumble into dust when it's said and done. Because all that really matters, did I live the truth to the ones I love? Was my life the proof that there is only one whose name will last forever? Okay, so thanks for patiently hanging with me. That's a lot to get through. Um, if you've got questions about this book, I, I, again, I really recommend it. I think it's great. Uh, next week, Michael is going to teach on a different book. Then we're going to have Andy Irwin. He went to Israel. He's going to talk about that. And then I think in a couple weeks more, we've got someone else doing a book. And then, of course, we'll shift on to other stuff. But hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, listening with us.